The little brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. The little brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. The little brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. <laughs> okay, I think that's enough. Seems like the bikes are working. Good. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews. Well, that's self-aggrandizing. To bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Actually, on this episode, there is no expert guest. This is actually our first roundtable show. But we're on a square table, so it's okay. Well, yeah, it's, it's rectangular. Re- yeah, well, I, I, I failed kindergarten. <laughs> uh, I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, Matt. And Dr. Paul Williams. Matt, Stuart, lovely to be with you, as always. Oh, hi, Paul. And uh, what are we going to do on this episode? So we we have a vague idea. I have no idea. <laughs> but before we get started, I did want to say uh, that that the views expressed on this show are those of the curbsiders and do not represent the views of the places where we work. Or used to. Except for Cash, <laughs> <laughs> except for Cashlack Memorial Hospital, because that's a fictional place. Cash-lack. So. Let's just say they're the views of Cashlack Memorial Hospital. Way to go, Cashlack. And uh, so let's start uh, let's... with a pick of the week. All right. Cue, cue <laughs> Flawless the, segue. Cue the sound effects. <laughs> okay. Who would like to give their pick of the week here? I will not go first. <laughs> okay. Paul, do you have anything, anything you're excited about or that you think that you would like to tell our audience about he'd like to see the yeah this is probably a bad forum to mention this just because now i'll be somewhat accountable but i i've set a personal goal for myself to actually watch 365 movies in 365 days this year how oh. successful have you been so far <laughs> so uh, yeah this is cutting into my movie time so i probably should get going shortly but i, I will say um one that i watched as part of that is the, is the movie sing street which has nothing to do with any kind of medicine but it is it's nice escapist um it's a nice escapist movie uh, it's as I say, it's called Sing Street. It's directed by this guy named John Carney, and it's set in the mid 1980s. And it's basically the story of this Irish kid who forms a band, basically just to get the attention of a girl that he likes. And it's it's basically a movie for people who are, uh, you know, as uh, probably as old as me, so not you guys, I guess, um, who sort of the 80s were formative years. And it's it's kind of charming because as the band starts to write their own music, you can actually see their influences. So initially they're you know aping Duran Duran, and then eventually they progress through the Cure. And then they're copying Hall and Oates, and it's just all in the service of kind of to get the girl, but also in the service of music, and it's sort of music as as a redemptive thing, which is not a new concept, but it's it's a movie I really really enjoyed and would highly recommend. Um, and it's easy to find on Netflix, so that would be my pick of the week, I think. Paul, you're so eloquent. I I don't know how you're going to find time to watch one movie or 365 movies. So are you going to, are you going to like batch and watch like five movies on a Saturday? So you don't have to watch one each weekday. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what it's shaken out to be. Uh, so the weekends are a little bit more uh, fruitful in terms of movie watching, but I'm, I'm going to try and make the numbers work. So, so far I've been successful, but on the other hand, we're still in January. So well, I'll keep you posted how it's going. Paul, uh, this, this is an episode where we're going to be recapping and uh, kind of, adding our responses about the obesity episode. I'm a little worried about your, your screen time and uh, what it might do to the waistline. Um, yeah, no, it's mostly sedentary time at this point. <laughs> you should uh, put a treadmill in front of the TV. Okay. So I, I <laughs> okay, don't, thanks. I, Ignore that one. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's not a bad idea, actually. Okay, thanks. Mm, I feel I, better. I just when you started talking, I assumed actually, I assumed it was going to be nonsensical, and I tuned out. <laughs> <laughs> I actually uh, put a, a treadmill in front of uh, a Netflix TV for my kids, and they're using it. Wow, I know. It's kind of yeah. Once they stop good. using the treadmill, it turns off. <laughs> uh, mine not is really. this is not a food pun. It, it the book is called Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi, and it's basically a book about networking, which is, I guess, kind of a term that has negative connotations. But in this sense, it, it, talks, you, it talks about how you can network in a strategic way, add value for other people, build a network of resources and friends. And I think it's really a, an important skill for, for medicine. And I guess just for regardless of what, what career field you're in, uh, this is the kind of thing the world works by if people like you and if you know people, things are going to go more smoothly. So this book really just has a lot of practical knowledge that you can apply. And it definitely talks about how to how to approach conferences and, and how to network while you're at conferences, which in medicine, we have lots of conferences. So I would highly recommend it. Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. And of course, we'll put all this in the show notes as usual. Yeah. So one of my colleagues just gave me a book that's on my reading list. I just want to mention it only because Eat is in the title. I haven't read it yet. I have no clue what it's about. So I guess uh, you'll find out. It's called Leaders Eat Last. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. No clue what it's about, but I'll find out soon. Anyways, that's, that's not my pick of the week. My pick of the week is uh, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events on Netflix. So this was originally a movie that starred Jim Carrey. Well, I didn't. Well, I was not a fan of the movie, but the series it follows the book series uh, very, very faithfully. There's eight episodes that were released on the 14th of January. I binge watched all of them. They, it's it's pretty cool. I like it, and my kids laughed nonstop. So there was that. So three recommendations, and they're all sedentary. <laughs> exactly, yeah, super solid medicine. Um, <laughs> really could be practice changing for you. Definitely appropriate for the obesity episode recap. So we talked to Dr. Timothy Garvey, who we called Tim for the episode, the writer of the 2016 ACE Obesity Guidelines. And we just wanted to highlight some of the points that he talked about and fill in some of the gaps where we didn't have time to get into fully in depth. And the first, the first thing that I wanted to talk about, and I have to admit my ignorance here, much like other areas I've been ignorant I hear on the bliss. show, was the... <laughs> was the the whole obesity is a disease movement. I kind of missed the boat on that, that you were... I, I understand that obesity is a disease, but kind of the, the mindset of thinking of this as a chronic disease and talking it to patients about this as a chronic disease, I think is a really nice tool that I got out of that. When you explain it to them, it's like you have obesity, it's like you have diabetes. For your diabetes, you might need to take medication for the rest of your life if you make a lot of lifestyle changes, maybe we can get you off those medications. But obesity is a chronic disease. It's always going to be there. We're going to have to struggle to treat this. Um, and and that was just something that I had never really conceptualized it that way. We did spend a little bit of time talking about it with Dr. Garvey. Um, he did. He he was actually featured in an article which I read a couple days later. I, I kind of got sent it on Twitter, and he, he was talking about this a little bit more in depth. Just at, obesity is a multifactorial chronic disease. It has genetic and social factors, as well as comorbidity issues that promote more weight gain. So it, it really is an uphill battle. And one of the big things, um, one of the big things that's talked about in the New England Journal review article on obesity, which came out, 
I believe it was yesterday, uh, on, was, online. Yeah. Uh, they, they go into talking about the mechanisms of obesity and I would, uh, we'll link to that in the no- show notes and I would highly encourage all of you to read that or at least skim it and look at the figures because they do shed a lot of light on this. Yeah, I think I, I actually I, I I regret not being able to be a direct part of that episode because I, I thought you guys did a fantastic job. And I, I, I think empowering is the right word, especially, you know, when you approach obesity not as a personal flaw, but as an incredibly complex disease with with a lot of factors that are difficult to address like i and that's pathophysiologically more much more complex than we've initially laid it out to be i think that takes a lot of sort of judgment and onus sort of off the patient and just makes it sort of again back into the realm of of a shared decision of something that you just need to work as a team to to try to to try to make better so i think if you actually come from that mindset it's it immediately takes some of the stigma away and makes it easier to actually approach sort of clinically and sort of less judgmentally so what paul was just saying about about the the complication the complicated pathophysiology that underlies this there there is this the, the mechanisms for obesity it's a it's a mix of genetic factors environmental factors and then dysregulation of the energy balance and this this New England Journal article says that there's probably 40 per, 40 to 70% of obesity is due to heritability right but the rest of it is some of these environmental factors, the environmental factors can influence the expression of your genome. They're not necessarily going to change your DNA, but they will, well, they won't change the DNA sequences, but they, they might the change your epigenetics rate. and your transcription. Yeah, we, we were talking about this off air before we started recording, but you know, I, I think one of the best ways to understand this is understand the implications of sleep apnea. So if you have obstructive sleep apnea and at night you your O2 sats are dropping down to the point where your body says, oh my goodness, I'm about to die, it's going to pump out a lot of norepi, epi, cortisol, and adrenocortical steroids. And those steroids are going to affect the transcription rates of certain genes. So when they talk about the epigenetics at the transcription level, they're talking about the effects of these corticosteroids on the transcription rates of certain uh, proteins that are going to affect the metabolic status. The big point of all these mechanisms is that the the high relapse rates that happen in obesity it's not it's not necessarily the patient's fault the patient falling off right I, I think we've all seen patients in clinic that say they're eating correctly and and they're active but they're they're not gaining weight or they're not losing weight they're they're staying the same it's it's that there's something about their physiology something about this set point that we talked about with Dr. Garvey that just kind of impairs that process and that's why you have to think of obesity as a chronic disease and it's really going to require a lot of different tools to to treat it, whether it's medications, lifestyle changes, um, or even surgery. Now, having said that, though, you know that that's not a a carte blanche excuse to say, "Oh, well, you're gaining weight because of these epigenetic factors." We still have to look at their diet, their exercise, their sedentary lifestyle, and say, "We know it's a difficult." disease to deal with, but we still need to make sure that we are readdressing these things that, that we know help to affect a significant and meaningful weight reduction. The next part I wanted to just reiterate, the, the percent weight loss that someone can realistically expect to lose. If you're talking diet and lifestyle, that's, that's only going to be about 5 to 10% of their weight. But the good news there is that Things like blood pressure, A1C, some of the lipids, those can be affected even as low as 5% change in their weight. Uh, when you're looking at 10% weight loss, that might, that's usually enough to pre- prevent 
progression to diabetes that might improve their sleep apnea symptoms. Uh, that's So that's diet and lifestyle. If you add on medications, now you're going to start getting more than a 10% weight loss. And right. things, in order to get like a 30% weight loss, on average, that is only really seen with the the surgeries, the gastric sleeve or the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. But if you do look at some of these figures from the New England Journal Review article, some patients, there there is a small percentage of patients on on the medications that would lose higher percentages um, in this range, in the 30% range. Yeah, and it all kind of depends on what the, the stimulus is that's causing them to gain weight. You know, if someone is eating because they derive pleasure from eating, then using you know, the naltrexone bupropion may be an appropriate medication to stop that that pleasure center from receiving that excessive dopamine response. The medications, the problem with medications and the reason why I haven't used them and I talked about on the other show is lack of familiarity. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to start using them. And, and after talking with Dr. Garvey, I think it's important to start using them, especially in patients who are adhering to the lifestyle changes and start to see start to see kind of a plateau in their progress or start to regain the weight i think you really have to think about using these yeah you, you know you know one of the things that really highlights that is something that happened just recently when i was speaking with one of the resident physicians there was a, a patient that we were seeing a very nice lady who whose bmi was in the 60 to 70 range uh, and she had gained a significant amount of weight since starting uh, starting gabapentin, which is associated with with weight gain, albeit a small percentage. And uh, I, I was talking about the talking with this resident about potential changes that we could do to help with weight loss. She was already trying some of these lifestyle changes and was not going anywhere. And so when I asked him about the medications, the only one that he was familiar with was Orlistat. Now, when I went through the medications with with him, and I I, I talked about the topiramate fentiramine. Uh, combination. He was like, "Oh yes, I remember a mix-up question about that." But that's the only other medication, even with with prompting, he was able to remember, which tells us that potentially there's an educational gap when it comes to weight loss medications. And I believe that some of that is related to the way that we view obesity in general. We look at it, unfortunately, as a lifestyle decision and not necessarily as a disease. And if we looked at it more of a, as a disease to be treated, then knowing these medications would be uh, a little easier for our physicians who are used to treating diseases and not necessarily, necessarily lifestyle um, issues, albeit maybe inappropriately. And Paul, you practice you practice in an area where basically a lot of patients are low income, either uninsured or underinsured. Do you see patients being put on these? The, there's five medications approved for weight loss. Do you see patients being put on these? And are are any of the general practitioners using them? There, we have one general practitioner who's actually uh, does a lot of research with weight loss and is fully comfort with most of them. Um, and she actually tends to favor the topiramate uh, fentramine combination. Um, and then in terms of the endocrinologists and the ones that I have the most comfort with uh, are the GLP-1 agonists, actually. And those we can actually get covered by a lot of insurances. Oftentimes, you have the dual indication for at least impaired glucose tolerance at the very least because most of these patients have metabolic syndrome. Um, and so you have an indication right off the gate to use them. So you can, you know, if you have sort of the higher dose um, GLP-1 agonists, that's that's something where I feel like a lot of just general internists should probably have some level of comfort with. Right. Um, and then you can actually promote weight loss while actually addressing another potential concern at the same time. In terms of the other, the other, like the Orlistat and, and the Lorcaserin, it's that those are not ones that I have a whole lot of familiarity with. And I think probably I'm perpetuating my own ignorance, which is why the residents don't think of it. So it's not something I teach much about because I just don't have a whole lot of comfort with it and so forth and so on. And 
Um, so I, I think it's a missed opportunity that I'm, I'm glad to have the chance to, to improve upon. I, I think it's also worth mentioning uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors and the uh, low dosage GLP-1 receptor agonists just to understand what expected weight loss you can get with those medications. So even with the SGLT2 inhibitor, they found that at 52 weeks, the weight loss was about 3 to 5%. And the GLP-1 receptor agonist, the lower dosage is about the same, around 3 to 5% weight loss. Um, and this is not looking at the higher dosage uh, liraglutide. So even with something like the exenatide, the, 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 the weekly prolonged release, you can, you can still get an effective weight loss. It may not be as effective as the higher dosage, but it's, it's still there. Right. Absolutely. I would encourage people to at least look up the side effects. You could use a review article like the New England Journal one, it does tell you the starting doses. It tells you, in general, the common side effects and the contraindications. And I think you can you can sort of try try your hand at these medications. Like Dr. Garvey was saying, they're relatively safe and well-tolerated as long as you pay attention to the contraindications and have some understanding of the side effects and the pathophysiology. And uh, personally, I'm going to definitely start using these in my practice it it may take a little bit of working with the various insurance companies mm-hmm. to try to figure out which ones you're able to get for patients. But I think that when you take the view that this is a chronic disease, like diabetes, like high blood pressure, medications are often going to be indicated. It's it's the it's not it's uncommon for a patient to be able to control these with just lifestyle. Right. You know something else that's worth mentioning that we didn't talk about is the comorbid. Uh, depression that you oftentimes see with morbid obesity. Now, we don't oftentimes think think about that, but oftentimes you may need to consider treating the depression because the depression alone may be a significant barrier for weight reduction just to start an exercise plan or consider a dietary change. Uh, One of my favorite medications to consider in someone who is overweight and depressed is actually bupropion because it is associated um, it, it not across the board, but more with weight loss than with weight gain that you might see with SSRIs or S or with uh, SNRIs. Having said that, some patients who take bupropion do experience weight gain, and you've got to be careful. And oftentimes, those patients that experience weight gain are those who are eating not because they derive pleasure from it, but because it's maybe cultural or it's something that they're doing. Uh, I'm trying to think of of the term. But it's it's more of just a, a habit, a habitual thing, instead of more something that they're dr- doing to derive pleasure from. Like so, a compulsion. Right, like a compulsion. So if someone has a compulsion, it may not necessarily be as effective. However, bupropion can be helpful for some compulsions. But in general, it's more effective if they're eating because they derive pleasure from that. So that's someone who's depressed and they eat chocolate, for example. Stuart, I wanted to ask you, uh, you're, you're, our coding, you're our resident coding expert. What is a coding tip that you can give, share with the audience on obesity? Well, aside from the fact that ICD-10 thinks that all obesity is from excessive calories, um, it's just understanding the cutoff between obesity and morbid obesity. Di- diagnosing and coding for mo- morbid obesity appropriately is going to help increase the uh, your medical decision making um, on your, uh, your, your E&M. And it could potentially be the difference between a 99214 and 99215. I would recommend that you code with BMI on top of that, uh, morbid obesity. Um, 
the codes for that, you can certainly look those up at like the ENM University or ICD10data.com. But uh, it's helpful to understand what these codes are. Add them to your favorites list because uh, oftentimes we're undercoding. We we may be coding for the obesity, but not the morbid ob- obesity. If you're going to code for morbid obesity with a BMI between 35 and 40, you also need to co- code for the comorbid conditions. So something like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obstructive sleep apnea, any of the comorbid conditions that could be related to that ob- obesity, you should code for that. Okay, thank you. We'll definitely be uh, coming back to you on these roundtable episodes to just try to get some coding tips. Um, I know you've done a lot at Cashlack for uh, improving Cashlack. improving the coding there, which apparently had a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I think the, the last part of this that I wanted to kind of get into is just going through some tips, tools, and tricks that, that we've used to treat obesity Maybe things that have uh, definitely things that have been successful for us in clinic. I I actually want to jump to number two, where it says "epic fail" from Doctor Watto. <laughs> epic fail. I'm trying to think what case I had in mind when I. Which case didn't you have? What case didn't I have? Actually, I wouldn't mind talking about one of my failures. Is, yeah, please. And it's actually sort of a general failure. It's I, I think in terms, you know, we talk about the importance of diet and exercise, <laughs> and I think it's it's easy to fall down just because we don't have the time or really the the education to do a good job with it. But, I, you know, I think for a long time, until I was corrected, I was treating uh, the diet component of treating obesity as just a simple math problem. You know, I think that's how we're often taught how to present it. Whereas if you take in fewer calories than what you need, you lose weight. And if you take in more than what you need, you gain weight. And so just eat less calories, please. And that's actually, it's it's such a small component of it. And I, I think that's such a oversimplistic way to present it and a sort of self-defeating way to present it with patients rather than sort of in terms of actually giving tips for eating more healthfully. Um, I, I think... That's a great example of sort of a bad way to go about it. And it's also something that's quite literally not true. Like if you actually follow that mathematical linear model, um, if a patient takes 100 calories less than what they did the year before, they would end up with like a negative weight by, by the end of their life, which is not actually possible. Because um, you know, the, the, the actual mathematical models are really dynamic and complicated. You can look them up online. But I guess the point being is if you oversimplify it again and put make it almost as an accusatory, like if you would just simply eat less calories, you would lose weight. But that's just, that's just not the case. And in fact, weight gain actually raises your BMR, it raises your basic metabolic rate, and it actually takes more energy to have uh, a higher body mass. And so it's, it's not as straightforward as I'd originally made it out to be. And I think that was a, a large mistake in terms of my counseling um, fairly early on in my practice. And, and that, that kind of highlights the uh, one of the issues that we talked to Dr. Garvey about, Tim, that we talked to Tim about, was utilizing your multidisciplinary team. So understanding how your dietitian can help you to to counsel with the appropriate dietary sources instead of just talking about calorie reduction, but understanding what high quality versus low quality uh, calorie sources are. Something that's out there, I think a lot of people think that low carb is the only way to lose weight right now. I think that's that's sort of out there and there there hasn't really been a diet to my knowledge that has shown that there has been no macronutrient concentration that or composition to a diet when you're talking about macronutrients, you're talking about carbohydrates, fat, and protein. There's no ratio of those that's necessarily been proven better than another for weight loss. Um, but I do think you have to just focus on quality of the calories. I mean, if all they're eating is those 100-calorie packs of uh, mini mini brownies, that's probably not going to, even if they're eating 2,000 calories a day from that or 1,500 calories a day from that, it's probably not as good as if they were getting most of that from lean meats and fruits and vegetables. So you all that has to come into into play. And and that kind of leads me to, Paul, in in the inner city where you're practicing, how do you get around 
how do you get around some of these these dietary and lifestyle changes? For I'm sure a lot of our listeners are in the same boat where they're practicing, where their patients have limited resources. Well, yeah, I, I think broadly the important thing is to sort of know what resources that you have. Um, you know, it's even in my own clinic we don't have a dietitian, which sort of makes it very challenging. So. There's a, there's a couple of things you can do. You know, if you can work within your health system, but I will sometimes refer patients to bariatric surgery because that is a department that at least has a dietitian and a nutritionist and has counseling. And even if, you know, the patient doesn't actually have a serious intent to go through the bariatric surgery, they at least have those resources and the chance for education at that level. Um, and, you know, there, there we have, like, as I say, our own weight loss internists that I'll sometimes shuffle people off to. Sometimes I will use an endocrinology referral so that they can devote their time to education. I will take, you know, a little bit of impaired glucose tolerance and, and use that as a way to use that specialist resources since I don't actually have my own. So having said that, some insurances, you know, the subspecialist copay is, is, is unbearably high. And so you're stuck with other stuff. So we have, you know, local grocery stores that actually do diet and education classes. There's a lot of local farmers markets and food initiatives. There's, um, one of the social services groups in, in, in the city in which I work actually has outpatient nutrition. You just have to know that it exists in order to get the patient there. So it's, some of it involves a little bit of self-education and knowing how to use the resources that you have in your, around you. You know, there's a lot of great local initiatives near me. It used to be a food desert. It isn't anymore. But there's a really interesting study that showed, you know, a lot of the economy and a lot of the groceries are actually bought at these corner stores. Um, and there's one study that showed kids on average stop there about twice a day. And for a dollar, they can purchase 1500 calories worth of food. And oh, it's, wow. yeah, no, it's staggering. And so if they're stopping there twice a day, spending two bucks, that's a 3000 calorie diet. <laughs> so do the math and figure out what's happening and why, why we're in the middle of an, an epidemic. And so there have been these local initiatives to actually educate these, these corner stores to sell healthier foods and actually sort of counsel against sort of these, these very high calorically dense, low nutritive value foods. So it's just a matter of, again, knowing what's around you and, and sort of leveraging that to your best effect. Mm. And another another thing, kind of just leveraging resources. If you if you don't have nutrition, and if you don't have nutrition for face to face counseling, there there is some evidence that to counseling over the telephone can be almost as effective as face to face counseling. Uh, online uh, online courses without any face to face person uh, don't seem to be as effective as by phone or face-to-face, -face, probably because there's less accountability. There are actually ways to capture that as an E&M, as a physician. So if you're doing the counseling over the telephone, you can actually capture that uh, productivity as well. There, mm -hmm. are, there are ways to do that. We, we can talk about that in the future. Okay. Guys, any final words or closing remarks about obesity? I mean, I'm sure we could talk about this forever, but I, I did. These, these are meant to be shorter episodes just where we get to kind of uh, jump on our soapbox right. if we have one, or just add some uh, hopefully valuable just tips and tricks that, that we didn't have time to bring up in the full-length episode. One of the things from my standpoint that I want other physicians to understand is that it's very important to assess for the barriers, barriers to weight loss. What are those barriers? And getting rid of those barriers as much as possible, involving other family members, involving someone who's going to hold them accountable, um, and understanding that you're going to be following up with these individuals on a, a, a very frequent basis in order to affect a meaningful and sustained weight loss. Uh, effective counseling takes time. 
Motivational interviewing takes time, but if you invest that time, you will no longer look at that patient as a patient, and you'll, you'll look at them as a friend. And understanding that if you look at them as a as 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 a friend, you're able to to establish a rapport and a relationship with that patient that helps them to understand that that you're there with them, that you're going to be there with them, and you're going to help them to attain the goals that they have, and not just the goals that you have for them. And I, the high intensity behavioral changes. Those are 14, 14 visits over a six-month period. It's hard to get patients to commit to those and to get into them. Um, but I, if they see that you're invested, they'll do it. In right. fact, the only time I've ever been successful for weight loss without without going through surgery is to make sure that I'm following up with that patient literally every other week. And I, I've gone, I, I've had patients sign up for local gyms, uh, lose between 50 and 100 pounds because they see that I'm interested. I'm calling them at home and saying, hey, did you go to the gym last couple weeks? No, I didn't. But I, I see that you're calling me. I, I see that you're concerned about me. And I'm going to do it for you, doctor. Paul, you got any final final words? No, no. I, I actually, I, I will pay Stuart through a compliment. I think that was beautifully said. I was That was the exact point I was going to make is if we're going to treat this like a chronic disease, by God, we should treat it like a chronic disease and actually keep close follow-up stay on top of it and actually prove that we're, we're invested in, in seeing this get better as well, just as much as we would glycemic control or blood pressure control. So I, I think that was really nicely said and a, and a great point. Well, thank you for that compliment, Dr. Uh, crap. Williams? <laughs> yes. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. So to do that, we need your input. (laughs) So to do that, we need your input. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic for the show or tell us what you love or hate about the show. Finally, please follow us on our page on Facebook or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And (laughs) good night. And I remain Paul Williams. Good night. Oh, hi, Paul. (laughs) 